0: Welcome to Entrepreneur Talks. I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. A few months ago, Twilio opened a mentorship office at Station F to help our resident startups develop their customer engagement strategies. Sounds like quite a mouthful, which is why we are excited to host Twilio's super CEO to tell the story for himself. Jeff Lawson, who's Twilio's founder and CEO, will join the show today to discuss a lot of stuff, but especially his crazy funding strategy to kick the company off, and also what he refers to as, no joke, the Twilio magic. And my co-host today is Laurence Brenneman co-founder and CEO of Pimpo, a station F startup developing a lead qualification as a service solution. But I do a terrible pitch. So,
1: Laurence, great to have you with us. I'll let you intro the company yourself. (laughs) Thank you, Roxanne. Very happy to be here. My name is Laurence. I'm the the co-founder and CEO of Pimpo. Uh, Pimpo is the leading tech platform specialized in lead qualification. We provide companies a scalable solution to engage, nurture, upsell uh, in a very smart way their growing contact database. So we we directly impact uh, their lead to revenue conversion rates by engaging and qualifying leads at each stage of the sales funnel uh, via WhatsApp and SMS uh, real conversation. So briefly, we help companies scale their sales organization and sometimes also their, their call center. We have recently exceeded uh, largely 100k euros of monthly recurring revenue with a very small team, uh, six to be more precise. And by the way, we are actively uh, recruiting to sustain uh, our growth. Wonderful. That's
0: quite impressive. And so now let's kick it off with Jeff. This podcast is supported by TikTok. TikTok takes brands into the digital era, from helping them reach new audiences to setting their campaigns up for success. TikTok empowers businesses to make the most out of its tools. So what if TikTok was the asset your business needed today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Jeff. It's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Roxanne, great to be here.
0: Wonderful, and I'm here with uh, Laurence as well. So, to get things started, um, I wanted to start with something that we discovered actually quite recently, but I'm assuming that a lot of Twilio fans already know this, but we just wanna hear it from you. You sold your wedding gifts to fund this company. We want the whole backstory, and we especially wanted to know how (laughs) your wife felt about this.
2: Well, I'll start with the obvious question there, which is that she was fully supportive. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank God.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I got divorced two days later. Um, no, it was um, we got married uh, about a year into after starting Twilio, and we had tried to raise money that summer. This the summer of two thousand eight, and just investors were not writing checks, uh, partially because of the financial meltdown. And then, partially because they didn't understand Twilio, they're like an API. That's not that's not a product. Developers. That's not an audience, right? So we were almost a year into building the company, and we had raised no money, and we hadn't taken salaries. The three founders, we had not taken salaries that whole year, and so you know it starts to take a toll on your personal bank account. And amid this, we got married, and um. We actually told people, our guests, we said, we actually told them we didn't want wedding gifts. We wanted donations to charitable causes. We listed several of our favorite charities, but somebody advised us, like, look, you have to put down a wedding registry because people, if you, they're going to buy you, even though you told them not to, they're going to buy you stuff. So we put down a registry and of course, yep, people did uh, buy us stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I felt like it was like we kind of told people like, you know, make donations on our behalf. That's what we really want. But for all, for all the folks who decided they did want to buy us physical things, we returned them all uh, the very next day and used that to add more runway to our personal bank accounts so we could just afford to keep building the company.
0: I love that. I'm wondering if any of them turned to you later and said, "Hey, I gave you something. How come I didn't get any shares in exchange?"
2: <laughs>
0: no, just kidding. It,
1: it it gives idea. If I knew, maybe uh, I I may have uh, think um, my my funding strategy uh, other otherly. So what's what's the the approach that you took to to fundraising from then uh, onward?
2: Well. You know, to me, one of the things that I realized was during that summer of 2008, when we were trying to raise money and investors, aside from the financial crisis, investors were, they kept saying like APIs, like that's not a product. You can't monetize that developers. They're not an audience. And they really told us, go back, go build an app, go build like a PBX or go build something that was an app. And you can always add an API to it later, but at least apps, I know how to monetize them. I know who the buyer is. And once you build that app, come back to me, then I'll find you. Meanwhile, we were looking at our early customers. Our early customers were using Twilio and they were building some amazing things. They were giving us great feedback. They were referring us to their friends. Like, Oh, can I, can I tell my friend who's a developer? I, they need Twilio. Can I, am I allowed to tell them? And so during this sort of, you know, private beta phase of Twilio, we were getting really encouraged by all of the traction and excitement we were seeing in the developer community. And so there was this big decision point. I remember um, one of, uh, while we got turned down by almost every investor we talked to, there was one very prominent, I won't name them, but prominent early stage Silicon Valley investor who was very interested in funding us. In fact, I did the full partner meeting. You know, that's usually the formality. You know, you're doing the partner meeting. That's usually like, you know, the partner who's sponsoring your deal is um, is just having you meet the team, but like, it's basically a done deal. So we're doing the full partner meeting and the night before this full partner meeting, Lehman Brothers collapses. And so I walk in there and they're just like, look, we don't know up from down. We're not going to, we're not writing checks anymore. And so they passed. And I, I remember we had a whole summer, didn't raise a dime from investors. And I I talked to my co-founders. I'm like, look, you know, investors told us run, you know, we're on the wrong path. This developer thing is a stupid idea. APIs aren't products. Like, you know, what do you think? Should we change our path? And we looked at what our customers were doing and we said, you know what? We need to follow our customers, not investors. And our customers are telling us we're on the right track. And so based on that, we said, okay, well, you know, we're just going to have an empty bank account for a while longer. And indeed, we launched Twilio. We said, you know, we were at that point, we were just a few months away from our, our launch. We said, let's just keep plowing ahead towards our launch. We launched immediately. Customers started signing up, started paying us, started spreading the word like, you know, it just showed that um, the idea that we had was was resonating with, with our core audience. And within a few months of launching, we had revenue coming in, and then investors were interested again. And so to me, the lesson I always took away in terms of fundraising is yeah, focus first and foremost on your customers. And when you do a good job of that, that's what investors are seeking like that's what they chase you can't chase investors investors chase success they chase product market fit and so you need to spend all of your time doing that and when you do that then raising money is actually somewhat easy um so that's the approach that i that i generally took with fundraising and in fact i'll give you another observation or piece of advice that i that i kind of stumbled across during the course of fundraising. And we raised, I'm trying to think, I think six private rounds Um, and a total of about $250 million privately, which by the way, at the time was a lot. Now that's like, it's like a, it's like a healthy seed round or something, right? <laughs> um, what it's easy as an entrepreneur to get into this mindset when you go talk to an investor where you're like, okay, I'm the lowly entrepreneur who needs the money and this and here's an investor they have all the money so i need to go in and like you know you just feel like you know they hold all the cards and you know you're there trying to do whatever you can to get get some of that money for to fund your startup and at some point during the fundraising process i kind of my my thinking changed i was like well, wait a minute like yes those are true investors are smart folks and They've got money, but actually, you know what? There's a lot of investors out there with a lot of money. You know what is scarce in this world? Great ideas to fund, and that's what I have. And so this isn't like the power dynamic between an entrepreneur and investor is not one where the entrepreneur is like nothing and the investor's got all the cards. It's actually two peers, professionals coming together, and you each have something the other needs. They've got some wisdom and they've got some money. You've got an idea, you've got traction, you've got a company. And if it's a good match, you see eye to eye, you like each other, you like what each other are doing, et cetera, then they can invest and you can allow them to invest. And if it's not a good match, you know, you don't get along, they don't understand the business, they want you to change your business model, whatever, then they don't invest and that's all there is to it. And there's a lot of investors out there. But once you see yourself as a peer of those investors, and once you see yourself as somebody with the product that they need, just like they've got the product you need, it's very empowering to go into those conversations. And so it's something I started thinking about. And I've told a lot of entrepreneurs to think about it that way, because I think it is easy to fall into this sense that like, oh, the investors are the ones with all the power in that conversation. Guess what? The more you get to know investors, the more you realize just how desperate they are for great companies to invest in and great entrepreneurs to invest in. And so when you think about it that way, yeah.
1: So true. And very inspiring. <laughs> yes. And
0: I was gonna say, Laurence, I know that you you won't say this, but it actually doesn't sound too different from your mentality when, when you went fundraising and then decided actually not to. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. We we wanted to raise fund uh, at the end of the, the last year, but finally we see that we had traction and uh the the, the conditions were, were not exactly what we wanted to, to have. The, the conversation where we are not smooth and okay, we said stop. Uh, we are going to stop now to focus only on customers on what they want. And we finally, uh, um, uh, boost our grow, uh, growth as, uh, as never we did before. So, uh, I think it was the, the, the right uh, path to take. And, and maybe we'll race around later by the end of the year. But, uh, uh at the moment, we are very proud of our, of our results uh, without any funding uh, like last year.
2: That's amazing, odds
0: Yeah, it's it's incredible. I love I love that both of you have that that mindset that is still somewhat rare, I find in the ecosystem. Um, but now, actually, Jeff, I wanted to come to to the France launch, which I feel was not so long ago, but maybe it actually was a little bit of a while ago. Um, but how are you approaching international expansion? How are you guys dealing with localization? Are there regulations you guys have to take into consideration? What does that look like for for Twilio?
2: Yeah, thank you. So you know, I think for any business, you know it's it's really interesting because as I was looking uh, last summer. I was I was floating in a lake on vacation, and I was looking at the raft I was floating on, and it had all of these war- like half the raft was taken up by warnings. You know, not a not a life saving device. Do not leave your kids unattended. All this sort of stuff. And this is a weird intro to the uh, internationalization of, of Twilio.
0: I love it. We're we're here for it.
2: And. And I was thinking about the fact that wow, I bet every country has so many regulations about how to like what labels you have to put on a raft. And I was thinking about when you manufacture physical goods, you have to figure out okay, every country that you're exporting this thing to, figure out what the regulations are, stamp the proper you know warnings on it, uh, and then get that skew with those warnings to the right uh, destination. That's an, an understood process. When you're a software company, you put up a website, you launch a mobile app, you're live everywhere in the world simultaneously all at once. And that is, that That kind of screws up your brain as a startup because customers start pulling you into all these markets that you did not intentionally decide to go into. You don't know what the warning labels are on the la- on the raft Yet customers are signing up, putting in credit cards, buying stuff, and then at some point later, you think about like, are we actually doing a good job in these places? Do we actually know what we're doing? Are we competent? And so you start chasing the opportunities that customers are pulling you into, but you're doing it a little bit after the fact, and so it's it's sort of backwards from how most businesses before the internet, you know, before software, how they would approach global expansion. They'd be very thoughtful about, oh, okay, well, we need to go there, we're gonna research all the regulations, we gotta get someone to ship a product there, yada, yada, yada. Now you just are, you're just everywhere all at once. And so the way we've thought about it is, and, that, and that's true for Twilio. Um, one of our early customers was Uber and Airbnb also. And despite the fact that these companies were located, you know, in our backyard here in San Francisco, they were driving us to become global companies very quickly. So we globalized our product um, very quickly, getting carrier relationships all around the world, having an API that worked everywhere in the world, that covered uh, you know seven billion people around the world very quickly. Um, yet we were infantile in our go to market around the world. And so we've been playing catch up now for many years to get great at bringing our product to market locally, for a variety of audiences and so we've been launching countries as we've been able to do that and so you're right we launched uh france in i think 2018 which now of course does seem like ages and ages and ages ago it might have been 2019 before the pandemic and um and so to us what that means is we actually have people in country we are localizing the website we are we are looking at local customs and looking at, like, how do you want to pay us? How do you want to read the docs? How do you want to... Um, what are the right connections to have in the region? right? If we want to reach um, you know, subscribers on the local networks, like other carrier relationships we might have that would be different than what we'd have if we were um, uh, just, say, powering a remote entity. Those are the kinds of questions that we ask. But to me, it's really about becoming a part of the community we're serving instead of doing that from afar because there's certain things you can do from afar there's very different things you do when you're a a member of the community so here we are at you know at, at you know station f right like it's like you know once you're in the region now you can actually understand where all the innovation is happening who are the people who are the influencers and who are the who are the folks who um, are going to be great customers or great champions for Twilio and really get to know the local community. And I think that's a big part of, of what happens when you actually start to localize and become um, uh, and really intentionally approach a community versus unintentionally.
0: Yeah, and, and I would say you guys have done an incredible job at that because I think everybody seems to know someone who's an avid Twilio fan. I also think the fact that uh, Laurence and, and Pimpo are great Avid Twilio users is a testament to how well you guys have done, um, and she also knows the French team very well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I have the chance to to share a lot of events and interviews with the the Twilio French team, and it often comes out in our discussion that uh, Twilio's culture is very much focused on the well-being of the employee. How did you imp- implement this on a on a large scale? Do you have some tips to to share with uh, with us?
2: Well, first of all, I'm really glad to hear that, um, that that's the feeling that, that all the folks on our team have, because that's certainly uh, our intention um, as leaders. You know, to me it all, look, there's a thousand decisions ultimately that are getting made. And as your company gets bigger, what you start to realize is that um, you don't even know most of the decisions that are getting made as, as a CEO or as a founder. In the early days, you do—you know everything. You make half the decisions yourself. Um, but as a company scales, Laurence, how how big is Pimpona? now? Uh,
1: we are just we are we are just six at the moment, but we are recruiting uh, actively. By the way.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome. That's a good plug. Um, you know, now you're at a stage where, like, you probably know everything. you like, you know, all the decisions that are going on that affect your employees, that affect your customers, and success for you as a founder and as a CEO means that as the company gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you've got many people, first dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of people who every day are making decisions that ultimately you would say, that's a decision I agree with. And you don't even know about most of these decisions yet. You still want them to be made in a way where you'd say, yeah, I agree with that. And so to me, that, is the act of creating a culture that is one that you're proud of and one that represents your values and you partially as a a company but you as a person you as the founder ceo this is like one of the few things that you can do honestly without anybody else's (laughs) input or agreement because it is your company If there's one thing a founder CEO is responsible for, it is setting the tone and creating the culture whereby everything else is going to happen. And so for us, I think one of the the aspects that we have always invested in is just being a very um, honest, transparent, and straightforward company. And so one of our um, principles that we live by is no shenanigans. And and that is one of our most loved thing uh, one of our most loved principles. You hear people say it all the time. And it's a way of making decisions. It's a way of evaluating our decisions. Against are we doing the right thing here?
0: just and for so, our, our international audience, what, what does no shenanigans
2: actually mean? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, the word shenanigans, it's actually an Irish word. <laughs> is it? Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so no shenanigans means uh like funny business, like, you know, people being dishonest. So the opposite of shenanigans is being honest, direct, and transparent. So no shenanigans. I know it's a common phrase, at least here in the U S which, uh, from what I understand when I was, I was visiting uh, Ireland several years ago, they said, do you know where that phrase comes from? And I was like, Oh no, this is one of our like main principles. a like, is it some sort of racist term? They were like, no, 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 not at all. Um, it, it there was a, like a, several centuries ago there was like a family called the shenanigans that was their last name and they were like hooligans and they would like go from town to town and like just beat people up and steal like it was just this gang of thugs basically and so there was the signs started going up no shenanigans like basically get out of our town and that's where that phrase came from so no
0: way. anyway
2: um so, I, you know, that doesn't exactly answer your question, Lawrence. Like, I, I, I don't know exactly the things that our, our team perceives as the as the things that make them feel like Twilio was really invested in them. For different people, it's going to be different things. Whether it is, you know, just, you know, uh, some number of the, the perks that we give, some number of the... Uh, and by the way, we're not the most generous in perks. There's companies that go way further than we do. Um, whether it is how we approach um, people dealing with each other, whether it's like, I don't know exactly what it is, but to me, it's all about the culture because you can take care of employees like monetarily or with perks or with whatever, but if the place is a miserable place to work because you don't like your colleagues or it's highly political, you know, there's no amount of perks that really make that worthwhile. Um, and so it's the, it's the sum of the whole experience. And we, um, we have a thing called the Twilio magic. That's how we describe our core values as a company. And there's really four pillars to the Twilio magic. And I'll briefly tell you what they are because I think, and this is, by the way, um, well, I'll tell you what they are and then I'll tell you a little bit about the process we came to, uh, came to them to get because I think it's interesting for, for founders and CEOs. But our four core values that make up the Twilio magic is we are builders, we are owners, we are curious, And we are positrons. And by the way, positrons, they're positively charged energetic particles. They're the (laughs) antimatter equivalent (laughs) of an electron. And in some ways, I think people may be responding to that one quite a bit. And to me, which is, how do you make people feel? Do you make people feel better off or worse off in your interactions with them? And I think positive energetic demeanor helps people feel better after their interactions with each other. Um, So anyway, those are four things. We are owners, we are builders, we are owners, we are curious, we are positrons. And the way we describe it is these are behaviors, and we don't always exhibit all of them. In fact, oftentimes we find ourselves off-center. We're not really being an owner today. And this is a reminder that we always want to sit at the center of these four values. We want to sit at the overlap between those four. And I could talk about this for a very long time, which I won't, but the one thing I will tell you is this is the fourth iteration of our values statement as a company. And what's interesting, I find, for any founder, what's most important is that you articulate what your values are. And there's a difference between your culture and your values. Culture is what your employees feel every day when they come to work. It just is. Every company has a culture. Now, your values are the handles, the words you use, the handles you put on that culture to describe it and to guide it. Because if you don't have handles on the culture, you can't guide it. And so it just takes on a life of its own. And you don't know where it's gonna end up. Because every employee that joins will have a different idea of, you know, basically how the culture works. But once you put handles on it, now you can guide it. Now you can talk about it. You can talk about where it's going right and where it's going wrong and the mistakes you're, you've made or the successes you've had in terms of like creating the culture that you really want. And so that's what your values are. And you can rearticulate those values from time to time. Cause again, you're not saying, Hey, our culture completely changed. We rolled out new values on Wednesday and now the culture is completely different. No, of course it's the same culture. You're just providing new handles, new words to describe it and the new way to guide it. And so I, I just encourage folks to be one very intentional about creating, um, uh, not creating, articulating values. It's already there. You're just articulating it. Um, and number two, you can change it to come up with better handles over time. And we've done it four times in the last 14 years. So you don't do it every day, but periodically you can do it. Um, and that's the tool that you have to guide the culture of the company.
0: That's fascinating. I love it. And I, I love the the concept of the Twilio magic. I find that really, that's uh, uh, just a really great image. And um, Kind of along the same cultural lines, I want to I wanna talk about something that you actually mentioned in the book that you published last year. You talk about the blameless post-mortem. Uh, tell us the backstory to that and what inspired it and, and kind of what's come from the blameless
2: postmortem. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I, I kind of like to think it goes back to our, our core value of like be curious, right? So we're always trying to get better. We're always trying to improve. We're always trying to learn. And I suspect a lot of entrepreneurs are that way and a lot of uh, startups in particular are, are that way as well. Like, obviously, it's not finished. You know, you're just getting started and you need to learn from everything. And so one of the things you can learn from is when things go wrong. And, you know, blameless postmortems come from the world of, of engineering. You know, when there's a, an outage of the website or something like that and you want to find out what happened. Uh, a very bad post would be, hey, you know, this new engineer pushed buggy code and it took down the website. Okay, bad engineer, bad engineer. Well, that would not teach you very much about what to do better going forward other than don't hire bad engineers, right? Like, um, and the thing that you recognize is that human beings make mistakes. Every human being makes mistakes. And so what you're really trying to get to the answer of, like, let's say you say, okay, bad engineer pushed bad code or, you know, engineer, <laughs> I'm going to get rid of that. Uh, engineer pushed bad code. Okay, you ask a second why. Okay, well, why did an engineer who makes a mistake because said engineer is human, we know humans make mistakes. Why did the obvious and inevitable human mistake uh, take down the website? Oh, well, because we have inadequate testing. Okay. Why do we have inadequate testing? Well, uh, you know, our test harnesses are too hard to use, or we don't have any test harnesses. Everyone's read from scratch, and there's no time to do that. Okay. Why don't we have test harnesses? Because at the end of the day, we believe in speed over quality. Ah, now you're at the root cause. The root cause is as a company, we don't actually value correctness. We value getting it done faster. Now, maybe that's fine. Maybe you say, okay, that is what it is. That is our values. Okay, great. I think probably most um, founder, CEOs, heads of engineering, et cetera, have a lot of pride in what they do. And they'd say, well, no, we don't, we don't value doing a, a poor job of building our product. Right? We, we value doing a good job. And so you say, okay, well, if our value system doesn't value us doing a good job, then we need to, to address that. And so what are, the, what are the mechanisms we might put in place? And so this blameless postmortem, it would be easy to blame the engineer. Engineer, you push bad code, bad engineer, bad. But you didn't get at the root cause. You know, you just assigned blame to somebody, probably one of the newer persons on the team, probably someone who is not going to work at your company for very long because they're like, wow, like I made a mistake and everyone's yelling at me. That's not cool. Um, what you really want to do is get to the systemic improvements that you can always make to your company to prevent the next incident, the next problem. Because if you, you know, scold that engineer and you blame that engineer, that does nothing for the next engineer that's about to join your company. Yet if you make systemic improvements to the company by addressing the cultural root cause, oh, maybe we don't value quality to the implementation, the mechanism. Let's invest in those test harnesses to let's measure how many uh, of our engineers are actually using those test harnesses. Now you've started to build a systemic improvement to your company that the next engineer will will get value out of because they'll walk in, they'll see a mature testing framework, they'll see measurement of how well it's used, and they will start using it. And that's a systemic improvement to the company um, that is blameless because it's trying to find the true root cause, not the individual who made a mistake because individuals make mistakes. That's a fact. The question is, what do you do to make it so that when people make mistakes, it's not catastrophic to your customers or to your company? And by the way, I'll say this approach, which comes out of engineering, like, you know, you probably hear this from your, from your engineers whenever there's, a, you know, an incident or an outage or a bug or whatever, right? You do a blameless postmortem, figure out the true root cause and go address and you have got your betterments that come out of it. Um, what we've started doing is applying this to actually many other disciplines at the company. And I think this is really interesting because I have not heard of a lot of companies doing this, but I think the same process works when there's failures of a wide varieties. You know, um, if you, uh, you know, lose a customer, you might do a blameless postmortem with the sales team. Again, the, the, the early, you know, shallow answer would be like, sales rep, you screwed up, you lost the customer. Okay, well, let's do a, a true blameless five whys postmortem to find out why do we really lose the customer? You imagine uh, you misforecast the year. You know, you've got a forecast you agreed to with the board. We're going to, you know, make this much money. We're going to make this much profit. And you're wildly wrong. Okay, you could blame yourselves, you could blame your CFO or your finance team, the board could blame you, or you could sit down and be like, "Okay, let's learn from that. How do we postmortem this?" Okay? We wildly missed our plan. Why? Oh, we had expectations of revenue that were too high. Okay, why? Right? And you learn from it. And you get better at forecasting the following year. So I think this is a a model and a and a, a mechanism that you can use in a wide variety of situations to understand how to build a stronger business every day.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I can feel both Laurence and I are sitting here doing blameless post-modems in our head for our own companies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: really. <laughs> uh, okay, maybe, maybe I, I have one last question for you, um, uh, Jeff. If you had one tip to share with uh, entrepreneurs to be successful, what would it be?
2: Uh, thank you, that's a great question, Laurence. I think my, my, biggest, um, my biggest advice for entrepreneurs, and this is from having started four companies um, in my history, two of which I was really passionate about, I was excited about, I wanted to serve my customer, I wanted to build that product, I just loved it. And two of the businesses were I kind of didn't. I didn't know that much about the customer, I didn't viscerally feel like the world needs this product. It felt like a good business opportunity, but it didn't feel like the thing that was calling to me. And so after having two experiences where, you know, I didn't have that deep need for the world to have this thing, and twice where it did, my advice is that you should feel a great sense of conviction around what you're doing. Because building a company is hard work. No matter what the company does, there will be blood, sweat, and tears involved in building a company. That's just the nature of the task. And so if you're going to put yourself through that, I think you owe it to yourself to feel like in your gut conviction that if you succeed at building this product and building this company, your customers' lives are truly better off. The world needs this product. And something will just bother you forever if you don't bring it to the world. That that fire in your belly for your customers to serve serve those customers and to bring this thing into the world, that's what gets you through the hard times. That's what gets you through the blood, sweat, and tears. And when you don't have that, what I think you find is you're like, why am I doing this? Right? Am I doing it to make money? Statistically, it's easier to make money by by going and getting a job at Google. So the real answer for why you're building a company has got to be something greater than that. And I think the best motivation is, is this visceral feeling. That the world needs what you're building and your customers need you to solve this problem. And when you feel that way, all that blood, sweat, and tears, it actually doesn't matter. It feels good. You're enjoying it. And so that's my my biggest piece of advice, conviction.
0: Love it. I can see Laurence definitely <laughs> feels the conviction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she's almost <laughs> uh, emotional over
1: here.
0: <laughs> uh, no, before before we let you go, Jeff, um, we, in the beginning, we we mentioned that this is a, a chat that's not just with me, but obviously with Laurence, so that it can be really entrepreneur to entrepreneur. And before we wrap up, I'd love to to also let you ask a question to Laurence.
2: That's a that's a great opportunity, um, Laurence. Here's my question for you. How how will you know when Pinpo has made it?
1: Um, it's a it's a great question. Um, I think we. I think we and and I already made it uh, actually, um, because I, it's it's funny because I thought about it uh, uh, a few days ago, and uh, I was thinking about what what is the success for me, and I, I thought about my team and what we did do, what we did during the, those last year a pivot, uh, uh, a new product, uh, new customers, new industries, uh, and and I, I thought that. Okay. Uh, I think I, think I, I already made it because uh, I've built the team, um, that is, that is able to, um, to, to push, uh, the, this startup far away. And, uh, and, uh, every day I really feel that they are happy to come here. And I think it's already a success. And if it has to stop uh, tomorrow, I, I don't want it, huh? but <laughs> if it has to stop, um uh, and uh, and if I had to to describe my uh, my journey uh I know that in my mind it will already be a, a a real success so so I think we already made it even if of course uh, I'm I'm really ambitious and I I want to I want to conquer the, the the world of course but um I've already met success with uh, with Pimpo
2: Awesome that's so good to hear that
0: I love it. I love that. That's a perfect note for us to end on. Uh, Thank you both. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Laurence, for being with us today. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This podcast is supported by TikTok. If you like this episode, make sure to leave us many, many stars. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. And if you have any speaker requests, feel free to ping us on Twitter or at press at stationf.co.